Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm here with my co-host, Daniel Larson, and unfortunately, we are witnessing the biggest hangover in recent history today, the result of the War Party's worst debacle in modern history, the culmination of the 20-year post-9-11 wars. Today in Afghanistan, the Taliban have consolidated control in the capital city of Kabul. And despite several thousand U.S. troops sent back in there in recent days to secure the airport, there are reports of thousands of Western-connected Afghans who are trying to get out. We promised to evacuate them, and it looks like the Taliban may impede their escape from the country, but we don't know yet. We will be talking to Richard Hanenia of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, But first, let's talk about what we are currently witnessing in Afghanistan and in the political arena in Washington. Dan, President Biden is taking a lot of heat for the evacuation, which personally I believe has been a debacle. I don't know how it could have been anticipated or couldn't have been anticipated that the Taliban had been taking so much ground so fast and that the evacuations of Afghan interpreters needed to happen earlier. I do know that people in the establishment, mainstream media, media, military generals, former officers, neoconservative warmongers, they've all been using this opportunity to deflect attention on the failed policy for the last 20 years. It's really disgusting to me to hear from people like Max Boot or Bill Kristol that we would have been just fine keeping 2,500 troops in the country for just a little more time. They have no idea or they pretend not to know that the country was on a downhill trajectory for years. Biden just ripped the Band-Aid off. The Band-Aid always has to come off. Um, I'm not sure there would have been a better time for this. Certainly not one, five, 10, 20 more years. So what do you think, Dan? What are you thinking today as you see events unfold in in Afghanistan? Well, so the the collapse of the Afghan government was certainly... uh, startling and how quickly it happened. But I suppose it really shouldn't have been that startling when we when we know how ineffective uh, their security forces have been. I mean, Biden will said in his speech the other day uh, that they wouldn't fight for their country. That's not really the issue. It's that they wouldn't fight for a government uh, that's deeply corrupt, uh, that is itself complicit in human rights abuses, and that uh, that they don't really believe in. And so it's, it's understandable that People aren't going to want to fight and die in a losing cause for a bad government. Uh, and, and we've seen this in, in other cases with client states that we've backed uh, that haven't been worth defending. Uh, and so the, the the right way to think about it, I think, is not that uh, they wouldn't fight for their country, but that we shouldn't fight to prop up a corrupt client state. Uh, and, and on that score, Biden uh, made the right call. And I think uh, he, he basically handled it about as well as he could have. Uh, I agree that there should have been more uh, urgency in getting uh, those Afghans that worked with the U.S. out of the country faster. Uh, Unfortunately, it seems like uh, that's one of the places where uh, the the usual visa process, the the usual bureaucratic process, uh, gummed up the works uh, where they shouldn't have just let people out or gotten people out uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, And I think the one of the reasons for that is that Biden was scared, basically, of being attacked for uh, bringing in lots of migrants, bringing in lots of refugees. Uh, he was afraid of the attack that he was going to get from Republicans over that. Uh, he's still getting attacked for that anyway, even though he's not really bringing the people out as quickly as he could. Uh, 
So I, I think that was a case where he, he sort of went into the defensive crouch and sort of preemptively failed to do what he needed to do to get those people out uh, because he didn't want to be uh, attacked for uh, another border crisis, uh, which is how it's going to be framed. But, and so uh, on that score, I think he, he did screw up and uh, it, it was an avoidable mistake. Uh, but in general, I think he has handled it well. He's, uh, he hasn't backed down from the basic point that the war isn't winnable, that the war uh, needs to end, and that the U.S. can't make the difference uh, with the troop presence that we had. Uh, one of the things that Hawks have been trying to say in the last week is that we had a sustainable status quo with the 2,500 troops, which is a lie. Uh, it wasn't sustainable. The Taliban was making gains anyway. And if we had remained any longer, American casualties would have been added to the list of things that had gone wrong. And then we would, there would be the inevitable demands for escalation, and we'd be right back into it for who knows how long. And so uh, sometimes you, you just have to, to cut your losses. And we, we should have done this five or 10 years ago. Uh, it's, it's bizarre to think that the original cutoff or the original end of the war, according to Obama, was 2014. Here we are seven years later, and we're just now really getting out of it. So it's uh, it took someone like Biden, I guess, someone who wasn't going to be intimidated by the foreign policy establishment because he's one of them uh, to, to simply say enough. And, and, and thank goodness that he did. Right. And I, and I, and I it's worth reminding that, when polled, most Americans have been saying that they want to get out of this war. Uh, they've been saying this for years. This isn't just the last year or the year before when Trump wanted to get out. Polling has been consistent that the Amer majority of Americans don't think that the war in Afghanistan is worth it and they want to get out and they don't see a military solution. And that tracks with what veterans have been saying, which is, to me that it's that's really important uh, that the veterans who have sacrificed their lives uh, for this country in Afghanistan, as well as in Iraq, have been polling uh, for years since at least 2017 or 2015, um, and greater and greater um, pluralities, and now a majority of them say that it wasn't worth it. And so I think Biden recognized that first off when he was elected, even on the campaign trail, you could hear that he was echoing a lot of the same verbiage of President Trump uh, ending the forever wars. We can't win these things militarily. We want to focus on diplomatic solutions, not military solutions. Those are the same things that Trump was saying in his own clunky way in 2016. And to my mind, this in part why he won in 2016, because he tapped into that wary, that's war wariness of the American people um, who did not see uh, anything uh, coming good coming out of those wars, those post 9-11 wars. So I think he was he's standing on firm ground with the American people. It just remains to be seen how much of a political hit he takes from this uh, because the media and the foreign policy establishment in this country seem hell bent on uh, drawing the wrong lessons from this. And I too saw some of the commentary last night on Fox News. Uh, Britt Hume was out there saying, wait a minute, we've only had this small force of 2,500 people, uh, troops there, and we were able to keep, uh, keep the, the country stabilized. 
And I just wanted to, you know, jump through the, the screen and strangle him. And there was nobody on the panel, of course, oh. to contradict him, um, which was very frustrating. Uh, and I and I'm proud that I'm, you know, at Quincy and we've had people on the media. I, I was on C-SPAN over the weekend and I was able to vocalize this. And I got a lot of great feedback from people. People are like, right on uh, this. We needed to be out of this war. But I feel like the elites in this in this in this town in Washington are are so invested in seeing um, our interventions, the status quo maintained, whether it be for warmongering uh, reasons for for the reasons that it's upholding the defense uh, industry or humanitarian reasons. There's plenty of humanitarian interventionists out there who who disagree with what Biden said. There, that that's a that's that's a the formidable force that we have to fight against. But I think we it's a good fight that we keep maintaining um, that, that the withdrawal was 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 the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And one and one of the things that's been uh, it's been frustrating to see on one level, it's it's also sort of funny uh, to see how many of uh, Trump's supporters uh, that had supported his withdrawal plan, his withdrawal deal. Uh, turn on a dime, and, and including Trump himself, turn on a dime and attack Biden yeah. over this, uh, accusing him of weakness and, and abandoning uh, the Afghan people as, as though Trump was a great lover of the Afghan people or something. I mean, he doesn't. And like he'd do he, it any better. Well, exactly. And so it's, to, to me, it, it points to the, the, the real opportunism uh, at the heart of uh, Trump's own foreign policy uh, views and uh, also, the opportunism of a lot of Republican partisans who were happy to abandon the war when the person in charge of their party thought it was a good idea and uh, who are now outraged uh, at the same thing because it's from someone from the other party. It, it's, it's so mindless. And so uh, it, it doesn't s- speak very well for the, the improvement of Republican foreign policy, I suppose, uh, but it suggests that the, the public really has gotten sick of the, the same old uh, endless warfare that we've seen. Uh, one of the, the other things that uh, we keep hearing from a lot of the establishment types is that this will damage our credibility in the world mm-hmm. uh, as though uh, committing to a 20-year desultory war <laughs> uh, in, a, in a peripheral theater, let's be honest, it's, it's a peripheral theater, doesn't actually affect us very much uh, or our interests, uh, as if that's going to undermine our credibility with anybody else. If anything, we have been showing to the world how sort of how irrational we can be in clinging to these conflicts that we don't need, and so it's it's been really it's been almost hilarious to listen to all of this talk about credibility. When first of all, that's not how credibility works, uh, and the the war in Afghanistan obviously can't be in our vital interest if they keep reaching for this lame credibility argument to to supplement. Uh, their case for why we should stay. Uh, the 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 fact of the matter is that leaving the war in Afghanistan isn't going to affect our vital interests because our vital interests weren't ever at stake, uh, or they hadn't been at least since two thousand two. And so we you know, we now I think we can now see that, and that will with time we will appreciate just what a, a pointless waste it was. It's always amazing to me that every time, particularly a Republican president 
are or a, a Republican effort uh, that the Democrats don't like, you know, on foreign policy comes around. They say, see, th this is this is this is hurting our credibility on the world stage. Nobody believes in us anymore. Let's face it. We lost our credibility on the on the world stage after we invaded Iraq. I mean, the world was looking to us after 9-11 to see how we would handle this massive, tragic attack on our soil. And we had the world behind us on the most part when we said we are going into Afghanistan to um, take out the people who are responsible, ostensibly, for 9-11. And then we said, ooh, now we're going to turn our sights on Iraq. And we saw that credibility just fritter away. And then what was remaining of it was completely obliterated after we invaded and then occupied and totally blundered the reconstruction and rebuilding of that country. And then the resurgence or, or the creation of ISIS and other terror groups that showed us to be so ineffectual as a military, as a government, as a democratic enterprise. I mean, so to say every year, oh, well, Trump comes to office and oh, all of our all of our credibility is gone. Nobody likes us anymore. There's always a poll that says, oh, the, the, the countries of the world think nothing of us. And after uh, January 6th, there are all these stories about, oh, we've lost our credibility on the world stage. Nobody believes in our democracy anymore. Nobody believed in our democracy after we tried to impose it on Iraq, totally failed, and then weren't able to beat you know, an insurgency that was like that, that that was equipped with like one one sixth of the weaponry that we had. We had all the power in the world to just obliterate the enemy and in, in, in Iraq, and we still didn't win. So, I, I really hate this whole trope of of credibility. Absolutely. Well, and you see how it's used. It's never used when we're talking about diplomatic agreements that we throw out the window. No one ever talks about. Uh, reneging, when we renege on treaties or pull out of treaties, that, that hurts our credibility. It's right. always uh, a question of will if, if we don't bomb someone, <laughs> then we lose credibility. Or if we yeah. don't stay in this endless war, then we lose credibility. It's always geared towards either starting a conflict or perpetuating one. Uh, and, and I don't see how that can actually be reassuring to other countries in the world, which have... I think for the most part have viewed our response to 9-11 as it has gone on all this time uh, as verging on insanity uh, because we, we have responded uh, with, with, a, with a massive overreaction uh, to the terrorist attacks, uh, horrible as they were. Uh, they were extreme outliers uh, in, in terms of terrorist attacks and the actual threat from international terrorism is quite low. And yet we have created massive upheaval waged wars that killed hundreds of thousands of people, displaced millions, and have thrown entire regions into chaos, uh, all, all out of our, our sort of incandescent rage uh, at the rest of the world. And so it's uh, that has itself been discrediting, that, that entire effort. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I agree absolutely. And <laughs> right. so one, one, of the, one of the things that disturbed me about Biden's speech, which was mostly uh, pretty good, that he gave just the other day, uh, is that he was starting to talk about how we need to focus on these other groups in other countries 
And so now we can we can move on from Afghanistan because that that job is done. But there are still Al Shabaab and Al Nusra yep. and, and all of these others in Somalia and Syria and other places uh, that also don't threaten us, that can't threaten us from where they are. Uh, but we're still going to go chasing after them forever, apparently. And so that the the perpetuation of the war on terror beyond Afghanistan is the next big challenge that we have to to face and we have to beat. Because that's uh, where we're headed, I guess. But, and it was so frustrating about that, Dan, is that these groups, al-Nusra, al-Shabaab, ISIS, they were created by our 9-11 wars. They, didn't, they weren't created in a vacuum. They were recreated because of the global war on terror. So al-Shabaab in Somalia, you know, the Bush administration had made a conscious decision to not support the Islamic Courts Union in Somalia at the time because they saw them as proto-terrorists. Even though they are, had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda at the time, they had nothing to do with, the, with, the, with 9-11, but they made a conscious decision to support the opposition. And what happened, you got a worse, worse um, situation with, with Al-Shabaab growing out of that. And so all of these groups that we're purporting uh, to or, or we're using as a justification to stay in the region and continue counterterrorism activities are because of our initial global war on terror uh, and specifically our occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq. So I don't know in the long term if the actual lessons were learned. I'm glad that Biden is using this language of restraint. He made a lot of good points. And personally, I agree and um, am happy that he stands behind his decision to withdraw and that he is he is focused on American interests and he wants to bring American troops home and doesn't want them to sacrifice anymore. Um, but I'm hoping like you that this doesn't mean um, a shift to another enemy. Uh, and I'm and I'm thinking specifically to China and South China Sea and, and all the buildup there. So I guess uh, there will always be a reason for us to come on air <laughs> here at Crashing the War yeah. Party because I, I don't see an end. I see this as a, as a, as a victory in a, in, a, in a way, but it's certainly not the, the end of the war. Right. Today is Richard Hanania. He is the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology and a fellow for Defense Priorities. Richard's interests include nuclear policy, American grand strategy, political psychology, the politics of the Middle East, and international law. He is the author of a report for the Cato Institute last year called Ineffective, Immoral, Politically Convenient, America's Over-Reliance on Economic Sanctions and What to Do About It. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, yeah, um, we're pleased to have you. Um, starting with the uh, some discussion of sanctions uh, with the, the Biden administration. Uh, they've kept all of the Trump era maximum pressure sanctions on Venezuela, Iran, Syria, and North Korea. Uh, they've had no more success in extracting concessions from any of these governments than Trump had. Uh, why do American political leaders keep using sanctions to try to coerce other states to change their behavior when it has repeatedly failed and inflicts such great harm on innocent civilians? 
Well, you know, I think it's a strange thing in our political culture. There's an expectation in Washington among elites that whenever something bad happens in the world, that the U.S. has to has to do something. So, you know, everywhere, wherever there's a there's a coup, there's a civil war, there's a disturbance, there's a human rights violation. People say, "What's the United States going to do?" People consider it sort of a, a president's uh, sense of na- a sense of honor, personal honor, national honor is at stake, even in things that we really have nothing to do with. Um, and so, you know, what does that mean? You can't go fight wars all the time. We fight a lot of wars, but you can't respond to every single thing that happens in the world, Burma or Hong Kong or uh, or Belarus. You can't go to war in all these places. You can't arm rebels at all these places. Sometimes we do do that. So and if you can't feel like you can't do it, you can't do nothing. Uh, sanction seems like a you know a middle way. People don't really notice it. Notice it. Um, it tends to be enforced through the Treasury Department. It tends to be a very uh, sort of technocratic, bureaucratic thing. And and I think that it has a political role to play in our in our politics. People will say, if you get rid of sanctions, they will say, you uh, you love Maduro, you're soft on Assad, you're soft on Kim Jong Un. Never mind if that's actually you know if the sanctions are actually hurting Kim Jong Un or they're just hurting the North Korean people. I think there's a there's sort of a deep pathology in our political culture and how we see the world. And sanctions, you know, they're so, they're often better than going to war. They still have massive humanitarian costs, and they shouldn't be seen as something that we just do uh, normally. In the course of international relations, I, no, absolutely, I agree, and it, it seems like, especially uh, in the, the cases of Iran and Venezuela, where the the sanctions policies have clearly backfired or have, or have completely failed to deliver any uh, progress on the stated goals, uh, it becomes more apparent that the people who advocate for these sanctions really just like to inflict punishment and isolate these countries, uh, sort of for the sake of doing it, so simply to to make an example of them or to, to inflict harm just uh, so they can say that they're uh, taking a stand, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that I think part of it is political. Part of it is I think they, there's a sort of a strategy of regime change, even though they don't want to say it's regime change. So a lot of the Iran hawks won't say they want regime change because it looks bad. And there's been a lot of terrible experiences with that. They're just hoping to, you know, starve Iran, put pressure on its government to the greatest extent possible. It it hasn't worked obviously, but I think that they're not interested in peaceful uh, coexistence. They want, and potentially, you know, another way, another thing that sanctions do is, is maybe you don't get regime change, but you do get continuing hostilities between the U.S. and that country. And right. if all you care about is uh, overthrowing Iran, you take the chance. You want relations to be sour, and then eventually, you know, hopefully, you'll get the right president, you'll get the right moment, and he'll he'll do the regime change thing more, uh, you know, more directly. Uh, so yeah, there's always you know a lot of arguments are often uh, bad on their surface, but often there's an ulterior motive behind them, and it's not it's not difficult to see. Sure. And turning to the big news of this week, uh, the uh, Taliban takeover in Afghanistan has been in the news uh, the last uh, for the last week as they've swept through the country and taken Kabul. Uh, Biden ordered withdrawal of U.S. forces uh, earlier this year, and he's so far followed through on that uh, commitment. Uh, the precipitous collapse of Afghan forces uh, has underscored the failure of earlier U.S. policy. Uh, you argued earlier this year that the U.S. should have withdrawn by the May 1st deadline. Uh, what do you think Biden got right on Afghanistan and what should he have done differently? Well, I think what he got right is 
the main story and we should have lose focus focus of that it is hard to withdraw from afghanistan it's hard because when you try to withdraw from afghanistan the politicians are going to attack you the military is going to attack you uh the cia is going to attack you the media is going to attack you you basically have no friends you're going to be alone and you're going to be out, out there on an island this is not just withdrawing from afghanistan this is withdrawing from any commitment some of the uh, bipartisan pushback to trump came when he tried to do some things that were mo uh, moving away from a, a more bellicose posture so when he tried to bring troops home from Syria, when he talked about uh, closing bases in Germany. That was one of the few cases, you know, maybe the only major case, or at least close to it, where Republicans in Congress were willing to go out on the limb, were willing to vote against Trump, and every time he backed down. And so it, it was difficult for Trump, it was difficult for Obama. Biden came along and he finally, you know, pulled off the Band-Aid. Um, and even, even the stuff that looks ugly, like the what's going on at the airport in Kabul, it's hard to see how you don't get some you don't get that at some point when you leave. Look, there's a lot of people who would like to leave Afghanistan, not only people who work with the United States, but a lot of people just would like to leave Afghanistan because it's a very poor country. There's always a migration uh, issue. And um, you know, the US is not particularly competent. It's supposed to run the Kabul airport in under the most desperate conditions. It can't even, it, it doesn't even drive route to the airport. It, it, it <laughs> takes helicopters right. from the U.S. embassy uh, to the Kabul airport and back. So they're going to, what, set up a TSA, a security clearance system on their way out. None of this makes, none of this makes any sense. So it was going to be ugly. And, you know, you could nitpick with what Biden did wrong, but there was no way that this was going to uh, happen in a way uh, that looked good or you didn't have some uh, footage of things, of things that that looked really bad and were potentially harmful politically, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, a more substantive mistake, he put too much faith in the Afghan government. He didn't need to go out. And I wouldn't have said this if I was him. I was, I was, I always thought that the Afghan, uh, the Afghan military would collapse, you know, maybe not this soon, but you know, eventually he didn't have to go out and say, uh, Kabul's uh, under threat, uh, not under threat. Um, the Afghan, you know, forces can hold. He should have shrugged his shoulders and been agnostic about it. I say, we give that we gave them the right. training, we gave them warning we were getting out, they might survive and they might not. Um, and then they didn't. And then if he said that, you know, people couldn't, people couldn't come back and use it against him. But this is just optics. This is short-term stuff. This is small compared to not being in, uh, uh, in Afghanistan for another 10, 15, 20 years. If it didn't happen now, that could, that could have easily happened. Biden said some stupid thing that makes him look bad. You know, people shouldn't really get hung up on that in the, in the bigger picture. Hi, Richard. It's Kelly. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We are very excited to have you. It's been a long time in coming. Um, let's talk about the optics a little bit, because I've noticed in the last 24 hours, you know, not only the right wing media, uh, but the left wing media has been piling on uh, in its criticism of the Biden administration over the evacuation. And there seems to be um, some level of concern uh, among people in our own quarters, you know, the people who have been fighting to get out of this war for a long time and out of uh, interventions or militarized foreign policy writ large for some time, that this will have an effect on the efforts for changing foreign policy uh, to be more restraint oriented, that this will be harm the restraint movement. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the narrative seems to be up for grabs right now? 
Yeah. So the restraint movement is always they're you know they're the ones with the smaller megaphones. So no matter what happens in the world, uh, the Washington Post editorial board and MSNBC and CNN are going to have a lot of say, and they're going to probably have more say than people like us. That doesn't mean you know that they're invincible, uh, but they're always going to be there and sort of they're always going to be uh, best positioned to uh, shape the narrative. I think that the effects you know effects on the ground are very important. So you had this war that went on for twenty years. Uh, whatever happens in Afghanistan, it's going to be really, really hard to go back. And it's going to be, you're not going to go back and you're going to build a government from scratch. So even if restraint was, you know, say hurt in the, in the short run, look, we don't have a war anymore. <laughs> we should just, we should just celebrate that. And that's why they, they fight so hard. Now they're going to, they're going to try to go and they're going to try to make it harder for the next time uh, a person uh, tries to do these things. And I think our, our job is to say, look, it didn't work out uh, that poorly. Look, the, the Taliban, you could have had a bloody civil war that lasted forever. The fact that the Taliban just marched into Kabul and the, you know, the government, uh, laid down. That's actually a good humanitarian result. It's not a perfect humanitarian result. Obviously, there's uh, human rights issues with the Taliban, but a prolonged civil war would have been the nightmare outcome, and we're not getting that. We're not even getting the Taliban uh, shooting at the U.S. on the way out, even though they have uh, capabilities. They have uh, the entire entirety of Kabul. The Taliban spokesman the, uh, the other day said they were letting the U.S. you know uh, take people uh, with them, and they're not they're not standing in their way. Um, and so we have to stress that we have to stress that it would have been. Uh, uh, ugly no matter what. It would have been ugly in part uh, because of the vested interests that tried to make it difficult uh, to, to pull out. So Biden in his speech the other day uh, said that the Afghan government discouraged um, people to leave. Uh, because they didn't want there to be panic. Because if everyone just starts leaving, then what does that say? That says that the government is about to fall. So even until the last moment when the government fell, the government wants to give the impression that it's still in control, that it still has a chance of um, of taking control of the country. So no matter when you did it, that was going to be a concern. Until the moment the Afghan government collapsed, um, you were going to have the Afghan government saying, we don't want to encourage an exodus. So it had to be sort of sudden. It had to be this, you know, the government had to collapse and then you had to take care of it. What's great about this is the, the one thing you don't know is if the Taliban will basically let you operate and let you take the, the people with you. And they're letting us to the great extent possible. We might be doing a good job. We might not. That's on us. That's our incompetence and the incompetence we've demonstrated uh, over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Uh, but I think that's that's what's important. We've got to keep stressing that this is actually this is actually all, 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 you know, at the end of the day, this is actually a good result. This is better than what most people expected. Do you think that um, partisan politics though, will uh, sort of take over at some level. And, you know, for example, I saw a piece in Politico this morning talking about how, you know, Republicans were licking their chops because they felt like this was going to hurt Biden for the midterms. And Democrats are so desperate to shore up votes uh, because of the razor thin majority that they have in Congress, that it's almost as though Republicans who might have been supporting, you know, Trump's withdrawal, you know, a year ago are now piling on against Biden because they think this is going to be politically expedient. So will that sort of dominate rather than the, the, the lessons learned, as you've pointed out? Yeah, well, Biden Biden was going to be in a tough case no matter what. What I've argued is this: I, you know, I knew that they would that he would be attacked by the media, he'd be attacked, you know, by in a bipartisan way. So that's going to hurt in the in the short run. Uh, the midterm elections is still something like fourteen months away. Yeah. You know, the, his reelection is uh, three years away. Um, 
we have short, we tend to have short memories. And the way Afghanistan would really hurt him is if he stayed in Afghanistan, it escalated. And no, the Republicans would not have given him credit and said, oh, great job, Biden. You know, you did the difficult thing and you stayed in Afghanistan. They would say Trump was going to pull out and right. you know, you're, you're, it's your fault for continuing this war and all these dead soldiers, you know, that, that that's on you. Uh, so it's, um, so yeah, you're going to be attacked by Republicans no matter what. Um, it's going to hurt no matter what. What this does is it's a short-term uh, harm and it it doesn't involve American casualties. And that's better than the alternative, which is long-term during election season and actually, you know, Americans, Americans dying in Afghanistan. I think that would have been the worst outcome for him. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that he was really trying for um, better optics, obviously, but the reason why he had pegged the withdrawal to September 11th is I think that, you know, the anniversary was that he was expecting to make a big uh, play for, you know, tying the withdrawal of Afghanistan, the end of the war to the 20th anniversary. And I'm, I'm thinking that this, uh, this, the, the end of the war, the evacuation, the fact that the country pretty much looks the same, if not worse than it did 20 years ago is going to color the commentary for the, the upcoming uh, 9-11 uh, commemoration. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to, you know, Biden will have a case. Biden will be able to go out there and he'll say, I ended the war. You know, that's it. And, you know, tell this is we're still in the we're still sort of in the you know, we're still just a day or two uh, after Kabul fell. Um, we have a short attention span, particularly for things that are going on overseas. Who remembers Belarus today? Who remembers uh, yeah. Hong Kong today? <laughs> nobody. I mean, nobody knows what's going on in these countries now. Uh, who even remembers Cuba a week or two ago? Yeah. Uh, there were these major protests. Uh, so, yeah, it looks bad now. But I saw a poll that was just uh, August 13th to 16th. And, they, you know, the headline in Politico was uh, support for withdrawal from Afghanistan collapses. collapses. And it went from 69% to 49% with 37% are against. So it's still plus 12, uh, even within the last uh, couple days. So this will become less important. Maybe, you know, the, the the discourse will hurt Biden more. But I don't think that, you know, if you're going to tell me what are the going to be the five to 10 major issues in the 2022 midterms and the 2024 election, I don't think Afghanistan will be near the top. And that's because Biden is leaving. If he stayed, you know, it might have all, it, it might have been. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And one of the things that's been interesting, listening to a lot of the hawkish complaints about the way that Biden did it and that he did it, is they were saying that, oh, there's no significant anti-war movement against Afghanistan. Well, that's because the public has tuned it out for the last 10 years, for the most part. Uh, so it, it's not as if they're going to suddenly start caring deeply about Afghanistan when it has not been a top priority for most people. Most people are rationally ignorant about most foreign policy issues, uh, especially when I think a lot of people probably didn't realize we still had troops in Afghanistan until we, we started talking about it again. Uh, so I, I don't think there's going to be much chance of uh, that backfiring on them politically, uh, at least not, a, not by a lot. Uh, coming back to what you were talking about, Richard, uh, in, with respect to U.S. incompetence, uh, Anatole Levin just wrote a really interesting piece, or it was just published this week, uh, talking about how the, the deal cutting that all of the Afghan forces did with the Taliban uh, as part of the arrangement to let the Taliban take over was actually a longstanding practice in uh, Afghan society. And that this is something that if we had known anything about Afghanistan, we should have anticipated uh, but because we don't really understand the country, even now after all this time, uh, it, it still caught uh, the government by surprise, evidently. 
Uh, and so that's why Biden was out there making these sort of ridiculous pronouncements about how uh, formidable the Afghan security forces were because they, they didn't know the first thing about the people that they were working with, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Afghans have institutions. They just don't look like Western institutions. So right. when the Taliban was fighting for Missouri Sharif in the, in the north, uh, the government had collapsed, but the Dastu militia and another militia were still fighting the Taliban. So they have fighting. They can fight in Afghanistan. Uh, the government just might not have been, you know, it's not as strong as the Taliban. It might not have been the second or third strongest force in the country, just because we tried to make it, uh, we tried to create the government and the armed forces sort of on the American model. And from the outside and it just led into you know to corruption and incompetence. So I think that drives home the lesson that you know we can't do we can't really do good here. We we can only screw things up and we need to be humble about what we can accomplish and we sort of need to let the country take its own path. Yeah I think that's right. Uh, and thinking about the, the consequences for this incompetence uh, among our own policymakers, it seems unlikely that any of the architects of the failed policy that has just collapsed in front of us will suffer any professional or political consequences for that failure. Is our system simply incapable of holding people accountable uh, for these debacles? Yeah, a little, I mean, a little bit. So, uh, I mean, the, the, you know, the only sort of uh, accountability there is at the ballot box. So the fact that the last two um, presidents both made the neocons, the Bill Crystals of the world unhappy in their own ways, <laughs> I think, is, you know, is positive. No, nobody's hiring Paul Wolfowitz. If Jeb had won in 2016, you know, maybe he would have, but nobody's hiring Paul Wolfowitz or Doug Well, somebody is, I mean, uh, uh, Hudson, the Hudson Institute is, uh, but nobody in the federal government is at least. Right. And so, yeah, they're living good lives. The, the, uh, the generals will get will go to their um, you know will, will go work for uh, industry uh, for uh, weapons manufacturers etc uh, when they were retired. Um, but for uh, you know uh, we've the the American people have at least elected uh, the last two presidents that have kept the worst people. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that. I mean John Bolton was the uh, <laughs> was a was a major figure in the last administration. So so it's not it's not a perfect system, and it's not you know they and, and uh, there's still a lot of uh, bad people in both in both administrations, but. You know, the public is turning against these people, and there is a little bit of accountability. The fact that it's uh, Biden and the fact that Trump both wanted to get out, I mean, is something is, yeah. is and Obama right. too. Obama right. and, just, it's just a constant struggle. Sure. And well, there, and there has been a little bit of progress. Uh, at least we are finally out of, of one war. Uh, there are more uh, to take care of, but uh, we are at least out of that one. Uh, so, uh, that should do it uh, for this episode. Uh, thanks very much, Richard, for coming on. Uh, it was great to have you on, and we look forward to having you back. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>